you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be in verses 10 through 14 today. We've been making our way through the book of Galatians. Galatians was an instrumental book in the Reformation. Martin Luther used it greatly in understanding justification by faith. And if you remember, we began this year looking at the Reformation, seeing in 1517, that's when Martin Luther nailed um, on the Wittenberg door the 95 Thesis, thus beginning the Protestant Reformation, um, which has now led to um, where we are today in Galatians. And Galatians 3 was an instrumental uh, part of that. And so if you have your Bibles, we'll be there in a few moments. Today, Paul is going to show uh, the Galatians, uh, the futility of trusting in law and the trusting in their own works for the purpose of salvation. Now, if you're a Christian and you've been one for a while, then you might think, well, that's great. I'm glad Paul is going to straighten out those Galatians, those poor, foolish Galatians. After all, we all know that being saved by grace through faith is like Gospel 101, right? I mean, that's one of the first things you know. And so, obviously, these poor Galatians, they just did not understand that. But I think there's a trap here that we can fall into. The trap is uh, that as Christians, we know that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, and therefore, oftentimes, we think that we're immune to the temptation of trusting in our works. And so what we're going to see, though, is that the Galatians, they are Christians. They're Christians like you and me, and they're very learned Christians. They know the Bible. They're young in their faith, but Paul is going to use four Old Testament quotations in our text today to make his argument why we are justified by faith and not by the law, and he gives no context to these quotations. He's assuming as he writes them, his readers will see them, know their Old Testament quotes, understand the context for them, and thus understand the argument. And so I urge you today, as we read this, do you, do you know that there's four Old Testament quotes here? Do you know which books they go to? Do you understand the context? So when we come to the book of Galatians, don't just think, oh, these poor Galatians, they just didn't really understand the gospel. No, they, they get the gospel. They're Christians, and they know the Bible so well that Paul's able to throw out quotes to them from the Bible, and they know where these are. Number three, another thing just to keep in mind, the Galatians have been deceived by a very convincing message. These false teachers have come, and they've rooted their argument deep within the history of Israel. They're looking at circumcision, which happened thousands of years ago with Abraham. They're looking at Moses and the giving of the law, and they're saying, look, Galatians, it's always been by works. Abraham was justified by works. The Old Testament Jews, Israel has always been justified by works. Why would you think any different? And so the argument is very convincing, and it's shaking their faith. And it ought to cause us just to be reminded as Christians, um, it's not enough to know the truth. But in order to stand firm, we need to know why the truth is true. We need to understand why it's true. Uh, to give an example, when I was in seminary, I went to a seminary that did not teach the permanence of salvation, meaning they, they taught that you could lose your salvation. And of course, I kind of grew up in a Baptist church where it was taught that you, um, you know, once you had faith in Christ, that you were saved and that was eternal. But I found myself in a class one time where the professor is teaching, look, salvation is not eternal, and basically everyone in the class was under that understanding too. And I'm sitting there going, well, I think it's supposed to be eternal, but everyone has their arguments why it's not. And I, and I really didn't have an argument well, why it was other than, well, I, I think the Bible says it, but you're giving me reasons why you think the Bible says it doesn't. And so as we're looking at the truth here, it's important that we understand why Paul is actually telling us you cannot be justified by works of law. Why is it futile to trust in our works in the law? And so... Um, as Paul gives this argument, the purpose is to strengthen the faith of the Galatians and also as ours as well. And not only is he wanting to strengthen their faith, but also he wants to strengthen their joy and their confidence in Jesus. And that's for us as well. So as we go through, you might be thinking, well, we kind of taught on justification by faith last week too. And we kind of taught on justification the week before that also. 
And kind of the week before, we taught on Esther that week, but before that we were in Galatians 2 and we're looking at justification by faith. And what Paul is wanting to do from many different arguments is help the Galatians truly understand their faith, why it is justification by faith, why it's not by the law, why it's not by works, and that they would stand firm in their faith, they'd be full of confidence in Jesus, and their joy would be full. And so that is the purpose as we come in here today. Um, so I want to invite you to stand as we read. We'll be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. We stand here when we read because we believe God's word is inspired and comes with his full authority. Chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to this passage today, give us wisdom, give us understanding, strengthen our faith. May we see the joy of your son, Jesus Christ, coming to save us, coming to redeem us. May we see the blessedness of Jesus and the futility of the law. Lord, I pray that if anyone is not a believer here today, they would understand the gospel. They would understand why the gospel is all by grace through faith in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that they would come to faith today. Lord, as those who are Christians here today, strengthen our faith. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, fortify our faith like a like a fortress today, that we would understand why we stand so firm on justification by faith. Thank you for your son, Jesus. In your name, amen. You all may be seated. (coughs) Paul begins by looking at the foolishness of turning to the law. Now, if you look, remember last week, verses 6 through 9, He gives a very positive argument. He's saying Abraham was justified by faith. If we have faith like Abraham, we too will become sons of Abraham, which to be a son of Abraham is to be a child of God. That's clearly taught at the end of chapter 3. Now here in our section, Paul is now going to look at the negative side. We're justified by faith, verses 6 through 9. Clearly we're not justified by the law, verses 10 through 14. And he wants to make sure we see the futility of it. To try to be saved by law-keeping is like climbing into a train to go to a destination where there are no train tracks. No matter how hard you want the train to go there, no matter what you do, it's not going to go where there are no tracks. And so in verses 10 through 12, Paul is going to give three reasons why it is futile for us to trust in the law for salvation. So number one, the law curses all who rely upon it for salvation. We see that clearly in verse 10. Paul clearly says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. The law does not give life. Indeed, it cannot give life. Now, this doesn't mean the law is bad. In fact, later in Romans chapter 7, Paul will say the law is good. It's holy. But the problem is the law is powerless. It's, it's ineffectual. It is impotent. It is not able to produce righteousness. And to illustrate this, Paul uses a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, which, of course, we all knew because, like the Galatians, we know our Bibles. Here in Deuteronomy, Israel's about to go into the promised land. So Moses is giving some of the last commands. And Moses says, look, when you go into the promised land, these tribes are going to go on to Mount Gerizim. These tribes are going to go on to Mount Ebal. The Levites are then going to pronounce 12 curses, which then you will say amen after them. And all these curses are... If you obey the law, you'll be cursed. If you obey the law, or if you disobey the law, you'll be, dis- you'll be cursed. If you disobey the law, you'll be cursed. And then he quotes verse 12. Or, he, I'm sorry, he quotes the last, the last curse, the 12th curse. And it's kind of the catch-all. It's the one that says, if you don't keep every single part of the law, then you will be cursed. That's what it means by, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You notice how he just emphasizes, abide by all things and do them. 
James says something very similar. In James chapter 2, verse 10, the brother of Jesus, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Nobody wants a wife who's 99% faithful, right? I mean, if you're 99% faithful, you're still a whore. You're still adulterous. You're not faithful. And that's what we see. The law demands absolute, perfect, perpetual obedience. You break it once, and it's considered on breaking all of it. And because we are sinful, we're unable to keep the law. That's what we see clearly in the scriptures. That's why God gave, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system. The blood sacrifices were to teach Israel that our best efforts are not good enough. We're unable to perfectly, perpetually keep the law, and therefore, we must depend upon the grace of God. That's what the sacrifices were for. The law demands perfection. We're not able to be perfect, and thus, there is grace with the sacrifices. The sacrifices were God's constant reminder to Israel that their relationship to God is ultimately not on law-keeping, but on God's grace. This, this is why Paul, in verse 11, will say, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Paul's saying, guys, you know your history. You know your Old Testament. You know the 39 books gives clear evidence that no one is made right by the law. Why? Because, well, the second point, the law is not an instrument of salvation. That's what we see in verse 11. Now it is no evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Why? Well, it's because the righteous shall live by faith. Now let me give you a reminder. If you go to the Old Testament, this is what you'll see. Before Israel is given the law, they grumble on their way to Mount Sinai, but they're not punished. After they're given the law, they grumble, and God sends a destroying fire upon them in Numbers chapter 10. Before Israel is given the law, they grumble about food, but they're not punished. After they've been given the law, they grumble about food, and God sends a killing plague upon them. Before Israel is given the law, there's a Sabbath violation, and the guy is reprimanded. Hey, you know, we don't really do that. Afterwards, they stone the guy. Before Israel was given the law, they grumble over water, but they're not punished. After the giving of the law, God sends fiery serpents upon them. So we clearly see the law does not give life. In fact, after the giving of the law, Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai. Remember that? He's got the Ten Commandments. And what is Israel doing? They're worshiping the golden calf. Moses throws down the golden, or throws down the commandments. And God kills 3,000 people that day, right? Let's fast forward to the New Testament. We have Jesus. He's resurrected now. And we have Peter standing up on Pentecost proclaiming the gospel. And what happens there upon the gospel? 3,000 are saved. The law does not bring life. The gospel is what brings life. We cannot change our hard, sinful hearts by law-keeping. We can't. And we need to be reminded of that. Like, you can give your kids rules all day long. You can keep rules all day long. You can keep all the road laws, you know, 35 miles an hour, everywhere in Lacey. Is anyone fed up with 35 miles an hour? <laughs> like, everywhere it's 35. Now, I think that was the biggest adjustment for my wife and I when we came here. It's like, really? There's not even a 50-mile-an-hour road? Um, but you can keep, you can try to keep that one. We're sinful. We can't. But we can try. We keep all the civil laws. We keep the laws at work. Keep the laws at home. We can even appear to be very moral, right? But do not mistake morality for salvation. There is no amount of rule-keeping that changes the condition of our hearts. This is why Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2.4. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. Salvation in the New Testament and Old Testament has always been by faith. That's why Paul mentions Abraham in verses 6 through 9. He says, guys, Abraham's justified by faith. If he was justified by faith, then so are we. And here Paul is emphasizing not only do we begin the Christian life by faith, but we continue the Christian life by faith. The entire Christian life is characterized by faith. In the Old Testament, law functions as a means of showing what it looked to live by faith, but because of sin, the law had been twisted into a means of salvation. 
And this is what the Judaizers are coming. They're coming to the Galatians. They're saying, guys, if you keep the law, then you can be saved. But it doesn't work. It's kind of like trying to make a ladder out of sand. It's just not going to hold you. You're just not going to be able to climb upon that. Back in the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church had fallen into this trap. They believed that you could be justified by works. And so the Pope in Rome, he said, uh, I forget what church it is, but um, there was a famous church there. And he said, look, we will give you an indulgence, the forgiveness of sins for anyone who is able to mount the staircase in front of the church. Meaning, make their way up each step of the stairs, each step of the staircase. And so people would flock there because they were told, look, you will receive the forgiveness of sins for yourself or for a loved one. It was so convincing. After all, the Bible was not well read at that moment. That Mainly uh, those who would attend church completely and absolutely relied upon the priests and the popes because they did not understand the Bible. And so they're hearing, wait a minute, we can get dad out of hell? We can get mom out of hell? We can shorten their time in purgatory? Yes, we'll climb these stairs. And so what they do is they climb each stair, stopping on each step, praying, kissing the step, going to the next one, going to the next one, going to the next one, believing if we do this, we are going to earn that person forgiveness or forgiveness for ourselves. So Martin Luther shows up there one day, and he begins to go up the steps. Begins, this is what we must do. But then Habakkuk 2.4, of all verses, Habakkuk 2.4, we read Habakkuk, it's an awesome passage, awesome book. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That's ringing true in his head. So he gets up, and he looks at it, and he just sees this foolish. Why would we climb stairs? How does stair climbing make me righteous before an all-powerful God? There's no way this works. And so he goes back to Wittenberg, where thus he begins to write upon the doctrine of the justification by faith, and thus the Protestant Reformation is born. Look, as Christians... We can be very attracted to a message of works. After all, the default position of our hearts is works. We are born looking at ourselves, trusting in ourselves. Think about it. When you meet someone, what's the first question you ask? What do you do? I want to know what you do. When, when you describe a Christian, how do you describe them? They're a child of God. No, we say, well, a Christian is one who reads the Bible and prays, attends church. We always talk about works. At home, how do you get dessert? Well, did you eat your vegetables? You know, did you do the work necessary to get the reward? You want playtime? Well, did you clean your room? At work, you want the raise? Did you put the hours in? Did you do the work that was necessary to get the promotion? The world we live in is all about works. That's the air that we breathe in a sinful world. In fact, if you look at the things that make you anxious, those are probably the things that you're looking to justify yourself. That's where you're looking at more than God. You're looking at either your work, you're looking at a situation at home, you're looking at whatever it is to justify who you are, to make yourself feel good, rather than turning to the God who has given us grace in Jesus Christ. And so we need to remember the Apostle Paul here. The law does not save because it's not an instrument of salvation to use it as an instrument of salvation is like using a sledgehammer to open your coke bottle it's just not going to work you're going to break it and that's what happens if we try to use the law for salvation it only brings us under a curse in fact the law is more like a reminder that we cannot be saved by works which brings us to our next point the law reminds us that we are slaves to sin in verse 12, Paul quotes Leviticus 18.5, which is a good summary of the law. And he says, the one who does them shall live by them. And what that means is the law requires perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. Perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. Can you live up to that standard? Perfect all the time. Now don't, like, if you're... This sinful default mode right here is, well, I know my wife sure can't, or I know my husband sure can't. You know, we automatically think, well, I know these guys can't. You and I cannot keep the law. We are not perfect. There's only one 
perfect man who has come, and that's Jesus Christ. That's why it's futile to trust in the law. The Galatians are saying, or the Judaizers are saying, turn to the law. Paul's saying, don't turn to the law. It's futile to go that way. So you might ask, well, why would God give a law that's not going to produce righteousness? And we're actually going to answer that much more next week, and so uh, I'll just allude to it now. If you look at chapter 3, verse 19, Paul then says, why then the law? Because see, this is, an, is going to be a natural question. Why would we have the law if it's not good or if it doesn't produce righteousness? And he says it was added because of transgressions, meaning it was meant to increase transgressions. That's the same argument that Paul will make in Romans 5.20. The law was given to increase sin. Martin Luther says it this way. The law is a light which shows and reveals not the grace of God, not the righteousness in life, but sin, death, and the wrath and judgment of God. Elsewhere, this is what he writes. The principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it sheets unto them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace. So the law, it's righteous. It just has no power to make us righteous. So as we keep looking at this righteous standard, what we keep saying is, I failed, I failed, I failed, I failed, I failed. I do not keep that, which then leads us to why God always put in the sacrificial system. We rely upon grace, not the law. So in these verses, Paul is painting a picture of the futility of the law to Galatians. He's saying, don't trust in the law it cannot save it was never intended to save by turning to the law you're turning from life to death to, to a curse it's as if you're taking a cup of strychnine and you're drinking it only death will result from this and so paul now now switches gears in verses 13 and 14 and so he's going to say what the blessing of jesus christ is he begins with the futility of the law he shows that in 10, 11, and 12, and then he says, okay, and this is why Jesus comes. Number one, we see Jesus becomes a curse for us. You see that in verse 13. Christ redeems us from the cursed law by becoming a curse for us. So, so why did Jesus become a curse? Well, because all of humanity is under a curse of law. You, me, every person born, It's like you just hear God speaking right now, <laughs> reading the book of Galatians to us. Crystal, we thank you for that. She's so happy I said her name right there, too. Bill's going to hear this later as he hears it. Thank you, Bill. Your wife is helpful in the message. I love Crystal. So why did Jesus become a curse? Because we're sinful. Because we're not perfectly, perpetually sinless. All of humanity were born sinful. Romans 6, were slaves to sin. That's what it says. So how does Jesus become a curse? Well, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21.3 in verse 13. And, and he writes, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so, of course, this refers to, to being crucified. Jesus wasn't actually hung, like, like what we would think in the Western movies, but he's crucified on a cross, and, and that was often referred to as, as being hanged on a tree. But being hanged on a tree is not what cursed anyone. Jesus isn't cursed because he was hung on a tree. Cursed people are hung on a tree. The, cur the tree, the cross, is more of a symbol. This person is cursed. Look at them. Only cursed people are on trees, are crucified. And so how was it that Jesus became a curse? Because after all, isn't he the son of God? Isn't he perfect? Isn't he holy? Isn't he righteous? How does he become a curse? How does it end up that he is on a cross? Well, we can look at many places. 1 Peter 2, 24 um, is a great verse, and this is what it says. He himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. So just Think about this again. Jesus bore our sins, where? In his body, where? On the tree. Why? 
so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So Jesus effectively takes our sins, our curse that's upon us because we're sinful, and he takes the sin, so he now becomes cursed. And what does he give us? He gives us his righteousness. There's what we call the great exchange. He gives us his righteousness. He takes our sin. Thus now he is cursed, and therefore he is crucified. What we, we call this substitution. Jesus became our substitute. Now, this is why Jesus had to come as a man. Because, for one, none of us can stand in the place of anyone else. A, a sinful person can't, can't die for another sinful person and justify them. We need a sinless person. The problem is there are no sinless people. So Jesus comes in flesh. He takes on flesh like you and me. That's what Hebrews 2 says. So that he could be a proper substitute. And that, therefore, he would take our sin and be able to go to the cross as our representative and, and be on the cross where you and I should have been on the, curse, on the cross and receive the wrath that you and I should have received. Remember that word propitiation? He's our substitutionary propitious offering. He receives the wrath that you and I should have received. That's the gospel right there. And so that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, guys, we're under a curse. The law clearly shows we're under a curse. That's why Christ comes. He comes to redeem us from the curse by becoming a curse for us so that we might have righteousness. But we see something else here also. We see that Christ redeems us. So he's our substitute, but he's also our redeemer. Now the rede redemption is, is marketplace language. If a slave... To be a slave and to be owned by someone, the only way you could be set free is to be redeemed, is to have a price paid for you. So we are all slaves to sin. The only way, though, we can be freed from this is there has to be this perfect price that is paid. And that price is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we love to say that the gospel is free, right? We love to say salvation is free for all who believe. And, and while that's true, let us not forget there was a cost. And the cost is the death of Jesus. The only, way re the only reason it's free for you and me is because Jesus died on the cross that we could be redeemed from our sins and made sons of God. And that's what we call the gospel. There's substitution, there's redemption, there's the propitiation. He's taking our wrath for us. Grace is when we receive not only what we don't deserve, but when we deserve the opposite. D don't forget that last part. Grace is not just receiving what we don't deserve. It's receiving not only what we don't deserve, but when we deserve the opposite. We deserve hell. That's where all of us stand before God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus comes. That's why the gospel is such good news. He comes and pays the price so that by grace we would be saved and have life. If you're a believer here today, I, I want to encourage you, remind yourself of these truths every day. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, you're primary responsibility to your children is not to raise them so they're good moral children. It's not so they get A's in school. It's not so they know how to pick up pine cones in the front yard. Or, or I think we even had kids here picking up pine cones here. We pick up a lot of pine cones here in Washington. But the purpose is that they know the gospel. Now, we don't save anyone. So I'm not placing that weight on you. The Bible does not place that weight on you if you're a parent, grandparent. The Bible does not call you to save your children the only one who saves is Jesus Christ. But we share the gospel with them. If you're a grandparent, if you're a parent, teach your kids how to fish. Teach your kids how to do all the cool things that you love to do. But more than any of that, have them know the gospel. Uh, Steph did this yesterday, if you remember. Um, we're, we're driving in the car, and our oldest son, he says, You know, this just isn't fair. These people work so hard to build houses and all these really, really nice things, and then it gets destroyed so quickly. Yep, that's true. And Steph says, well, you know, 
that reminds us of the power of God. And we should not trust in what we can build. Because all the things of this earth will eventually perish. And eventually everything on this world will fall away. Only those who have faith in Jesus Christ will stand firm. So what we do as parents and as grandparents, we take every opportunity we have. How do we direct our kids to the gospel? How do we direct them to, yeah, this is a tragedy. We live in a sinful world. We're going to see more storms. Let us be reminded of the power of God and this world will not last. Steer your kids to Christ. Shepherd them towards Christ at every moment. Do not underestimate the world. The world is bombarding you, your children, your neighbors, your loved ones, your co-workers with an anti-gospel message every single day. Through the TV, through the radio, through school work, you're continuously being inundated by the message that you are sufficient. You have now the authority to determine what sexual orientation you are. You have the authority to determine what sexual preference you desire in others. You have now the authority, what the world says, is to make any, any decision you want regarding yourself. And I have no ability to say anything about it. That's what the world says. And the reason it says that is because you are the authority it dismisses God as the authority and says, no, there is no God. Or if there is a God, we don't care about him. He's not above us. He's under us. Therefore, you have the authority to determine how you want to live, what you want to do. And at the end of the life, God has no way to hold back salvation from you. Or maybe you dismiss salvation altogether. But you live and you determine if you're good. And on that basis alone, you win salvation. That's the message of the world. It's the lie that you're being told every day, that your kids are being told. It's the same lie that Adam, and, that Adam and Eve were told by Satan. It's the same lie he's been whispering in everyone's ear. It's the same lie some of you might be thinking at this moment. Great, I hear this gospel stuff. I don't really believe it. It's the same lie he's whispering right at this moment, saying, you don't really have to believe in this Jesus person. Every day, we must remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel. Because while we're here on earth, even for us who have been saved, we struggle now with the flesh. We're no longer slaves to sin. Now we battle the sin. We've now become sons of God. But now, we, we, we wrestle against sin that we would live in a way that honors God. And so therefore, we remind ourselves every day of the gospel. We remind ourselves that apart from faith in Jesus... You're under the curse. We gotta know. Do you know that? Apart from Jesus, you are under a curse. I am under a curse. You are under a curse. Meaning, no matter what we do, when we stand before God, we can give him our moral resume, and we can stand proudly before him, and we will not enjoy his love, his his presence, we will not enjoy his grace, we will not enjoy his blessing, we will only enjoy or we'll only suffer under his wrath and damnation we all stand under a curse we also need to remind ourselves every day jesus became the, that curse for us so we could live every day when we when you open up the bible that's what you're doing you're looking at the scriptures that testify of the gospel and you're being reminded i was under a curse as i was born but now by grace i've been saved because jesus became that curse he became that substitute and became that propitious offering he took the wrath i should have received that i might be in grace and we remember that we've been redeemed we're no longer slaves to sin but we're sons and daughters of god that's what happens every day when we come into the word that's why almost every week the application is just read the bible every week come and read the bible and don't read it just to read it and close it read it to be changed Every week praying as you're looking at it, God, help me to understand this. Help me to understand salvation. Help me to understand Jesus and how he died on the cross for me. Help me to understand the grace that now you've given to me that I would live for you. Every day we come to the word of God. That's why I encourage you greatly, begin your mornings with the word of God. Some of you, that might mean waking up earlier, that means changing schedules. I get that. But there is no greater truth. As you wake up, you will be bombarded with the message of the works all day long. 
we must continually come back to the gospel, be reminded of the truth of the gospel, be reminded of the argument for the futility of the law and the wisdom and blessing of Jesus. And this is what it is to live by faith, knowing that Jesus became a curse for us, knowing that he's our substitute, knowing that he's our redeemer. To live by faith means that we're trusting in Jesus, that we've been saved and made righteous by his sacrifice. And so every day as we live by faith, what we're saying is, I'm trusting in the righteousness of Jesus today, not in the performance of my works today. Which if that, if you can believe that truth, if you can begin to understand that, that'll remove just about all anxiety that you encounter every single day. If you're an anxious person, coming into the word of God, being reminded that your status before God or anyone is not determined by your actions, but only by the grace of God removes all anxiety right there. Also, to live by faith means that not only did God give grace at the beginning of my salvation, but he gives grace every single day. So he will give you wisdom on how to speak to your spouse when they're arguing. He'll give you wisdom and grace and peace and patience at work when you have that co-worker who seems just to keep knowing how to push those buttons. He will give you the grace that you need when your children are less than perfectly, perpetually wonderful. Or he will give your children grace when you are not perfectly, perpetually wonderful. We need to know these truths. We must be reminded of these truths every day. And again, I come back, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're not a parent or a grandparent, but if you want to be a parent or grandparent to someone else, teach these truths. These truths are what we need to hear. So whether you have kids, look at who you disciple. Look at who you are sharing these truths with on a regular basis. But there is no more important truth than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now in verse 14, Paul wants us to further understand this redemption. He wants us to further understand what we have received because of Jesus. And so he tells us, number one, Jesus gives us the blessing of Abraham. Now get this, the Judaizers are saying, you want the blessing of Abraham? You want to be a son of Abraham? Go to the law. Paul says, that's foolish. You're already a son of Abraham through Jesus. Why would you go back to the law which brings curse? To be to receive the blessing of Abraham is to become a son of Abraham. At the end of chapter 3, we'll get there next week, clearly tells us to be a son of Abraham is to be a child of God. And so the blessing of Abraham is ultimately the blessing of salvation that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But he wants us to know more. Specifically, he says, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus gives us the spirit. The blessing of Abraham is, yes, salvation, which is the giving of the Spirit. Remember the law. The law is the letter. The letter has no power to save you. You can keep going with the law all day long. It will not change your heart. You can even keep the law. And what happens if you keep the law? You feel self-righteous. Look at how good I am. You look down upon others. And so even those who keep the law do not move towards righteousness because it only serves to fill themselves with pride. And so the law has no power to change you. It's impotent, it's ineffectual, and then comes the Spirit. In the New Covenant, the Spirit gives us life. The Spirit regenerates us. The Spirit gives us a new heart. When we're going through the Bible, in Deuteronomy, uh, it tells us, one day God will circumcise your hearts. In Ezekiel and Jeremiah, it says, one day you'll receive a new heart. God will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And he will pour forth his spirit upon you that you will live for him. So we keep looking for this day. When is this day going to come when the spirit comes who regenerates and renews us? And we see that comes in Jesus Christ. Because the spirit, in the spirit there is power. Because the spirit is God. And so now he dwells in us that we would live for him that we would be transformed, that we would be living sacrifices for God so that no longer would we be slaves to sin, but what the Bible even says, we might be slaves to righteousness. So that's the difference there. We go from the law, which has no power, to trusting in Jesus, which has all the power, because the Spirit comes upon us, regenerating us, taking all the promises of Jesus 
in applying them to us. As a Christian, what we understand is that everything we have is by grace. Everything we have is by grace. In our sinfulness, we deserve death and damnation, but by God's grace, we're saved so that we can have eternal life. So let's just recap Paul's argument. Verses 1 through 14, the Judaizers are trying to convince the Galatians, guys, we need to go to the Old Testament law. Abraham was justified by works. All the Israelites were justified by works. So Paul says in verses 1 through 5, guys, look at your own testimony. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's saying, remember, were you saved that day by your law keeping? Or all of a sudden, was it by grace through faith that all of a sudden Jesus became sweet to you and you knew that you were saved? In verses 6 through 9, he says, Abraham wasn't justified by faith. Let's go back to the scriptures. Circumcision takes place after Abraham has been justified. That's in chapter 17. It's in chapter 15. We're told Abraham believes in, the right, believes in God and is counted righteous, not by works, but by faith. And Romans tells us, look, this wasn't written for Abraham alone. It was written for our sake. So that you and I, 2,000 or 4,000 years later from Abraham, 2,000 years later from the Galatians might know we are not justified by works but by faith. In verses 10 through 14, Paul now says, now look guys, it is ridiculous to go back to the law. Strict nine is in the law. You will die if you trust in the law. There's curses under the law. Trust in Jesus so that by grace you'd be saved and thus the law would be fulfilled. There's no sweeter truth than the gospel of grace. This is what Paul has been saying. He's strengthening the Galatians' argument. So when the, now the Judaizers come and say, hey, you can be justified by works, and they'll say no. My personal testimony says that. I'm not. Abraham wasn't. The entire Old Testament shows that we're not justified by works. I know that that's not the purpose of the law. Now, they have clear theological reasons for the faith. See, faith is not meaningless and mindless. When we say, have faith, we're not saying, man, just believe in something, good luck to you. But there's truth behind our faith because the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. And Paul is wanting the Galatians to know this. He's wanting us to know this so we can stand firm in our faith and we would have full joy. Because the more confident we are in our salvation, the more assured we will be and the more joy we'll have in Christ, knowing, just as at the end of Romans 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Why? Oh, because we've been declared righteous by God. Let me close by mentioning John Bunyan, because you all wanted to know about John Bunyan. Now, sometimes when I talk about John Bunyan, I call him Paul Bunyan. That's not the one I'm talking about, not the one with the blue ox today. John Bunyan was a Puritan in the 17th century. He's the one who wrote the famous book, Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read that book, go buy it. It's an allegory of the Christian life. It's amazing. So John Bunyan is preaching the gospel. The authorities come, and they arrest him, and they put him into jail. And they say, John, we'll let you out if you stop preaching the gospel. Now, John has a wife. He has four kids. One of them is blind. So what do you do? What do you do at this moment? We'll let you out. You can be with your family. Don't you want to be a good dad? Don't you want to go home to your children? Don't you want to be a good husband? Just stop preaching the gospel, John. But John knows the truth of justification by faith. He knows there's no greater blessing. How does he go home to his children and say, guys, I came home to you, but I'll never talk about the greatest blessing in the world again. The way he shepherds his family at that time is by staying in prison for 12 more years so that he might testify of the gospel of the grace of God and that we're only justified by grace through faith in Christ. That's what happens as we begin to be strengthened by the gospel. All the joys, all the pleasures in this world pale in comparison because we see the beauty of Jesus. Because only Jesus has been our substitute. Only Jesus has redeemed us. Only Jesus is our propitious offering. Only Jesus saves. This is what Paul writes, or John writes while he's in prison. I am indeed in prison, no in body, 
but my mind is free to study Christ, and how unto me he is kind. For though men keep my outward man within their locks and bars, yet by faith of Christ I can mount higher than the stars. Their fetters cannot spirits tame, nor tie up God from me. My faith and hope they cannot lame. Above them I shall be. I encourage you, every day be in the gospel. Every day, as you're looking at the truth of God's word, understand, we are born under a curse. Jesus becomes the curse for us. The law will not save us. Therefore, Jesus came as our substitute and redeems us that we might have life. That's the gospel. Know it every day. Teach it to your children. Teach it to your grandchildren. Communicate it to your neighbors. Let's pray. Our Father, there is no sweeter truth than the gospel. God, help us to know that. God, I pray just for us who are here that I know each and every day the, the world is bombarding us and oftentimes we don't even know it because it's so subtle and we begin to be lured into works thinking that we can improve our position before you, thinking that we can be justified before you by our works. God, I pray right now, just in each of us individually, God, if there is sin that needs to be confessed, reveal that to us, that we would confess that now, that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt we are justified by grace through faith in Jesus and nothing else. God, we thank you for the law. The law is good. The law helps us see that we are sinful, that, oh, we would trust in you. God, help us to be a church that trusts in you. Help us to be a church that loves the gospel. May we cling to the gospel. Help us to share the gospel every day, not only to ourselves, but to our loved ones, to our neighbors, to those we work with. God, may you uproot us from where we live and move us around the world, that we'd be missionaries speaking to others about the truth of the gospel, that more and more people would be saved. God, we thank you for the joy of justification by faith. In your name, Jesus, amen. I want to have a seat just for a moment. We have a couple questions. Uh, number one, if we're designed to sin, then how is it justified under God that we remain a good Christian? Um, I'll take that in just in two parts. If we're designed to sin, well, we're made in God's image, so we're actually made to worship him. It's because of sin, or it's, be it's because of sin that we no longer worship God. So that's the whole gospel, that God's now redeeming a people for himself. Um, how is it justified under God that we remain a good Christian? The way that now we live as a Christian is through the power of the Spirit who now dwells in us. And to say that we're a good Christian, that, that's kind of a tough one because now through Christ we've been justified. We've been made righteous. We don't improve on that righteousness. So even by, by reading the Bible and by, by doing the very things that we read about in the New Testament that God calls us to do, that doesn't make us better in a sense. Rather, what we're doing is we're living out who we are in Jesus. We're living out our true identity. Um, so I think that might be how I would answer that. So God saves us uh, from sin because we're made in his image that we'd once again live for him. He gives us his spirit that we would live uh, for him. And two other questions. If God knew that the law would only increase sin, then why would he give it? Well, we'll talk about that next week. Um, but uh, that's why God gave the sacrificial system. I mean, don't miss that. Like, like even in, in Deuteronomy, right when Moses tells them, okay, when you go into the law, you're going to have these tribes, or go into the land, you're going to have these tribes stand here, these tribes stand here, you're going to list these 12 curses. After that, what they're to do is they're to mount this, off, this altar right there. So then they also remember the only reason that they're in the promised land is by the grace of God. And so as they're shouting out these law, the law and the curses that follow it, they're being reminded the only way we actually inherit this land, the only way we actually receive any of God's promises is through grace, not through the law. And so we'll see that more next week. Um, but the law was to teach us not to rely upon our works. Um, how exactly do I teach my children these truths? Um, read the Bible to them. Always read the Bible. Read other good books to them. C.S. Lewis's books are good. The, the Narnia books. Um, there's a lot of Christian books. We have a lot that we, I, we just buy Christian books all the time for our kids. Um, 
we can give you a list of books, but there's good Christian books out there. WTSbooks.com, WTSbooks.com, great place to find books. Um, speak to your kids constantly about the Bible, like I kind of said earlier with my wife, uh, did just with Ben at that one moment, but talk about God all the time. Don't let God be a thing you only talk on Sundays. We trust in God every day, every week. When we lose something, we pray. When we need help with something, we pray. We're continually looking to God. We're trusting in God. When our kids have problems, we, we help them. We, we look at the Bible. We talk about that. Um, we pray with our kids. Uh, probably more than anything, though, you have to be growing in your love for God also. If you want to help your kids know the word, um, you need to be growing in the word. And so um, are you growing in the word? Are you reading the Bible? Are you changing? Are you being transformed regularly by Jesus? And so uh, that's probably the number one thing that I would say. If you're doing that, then you'll probably be reading with them and doing everything else with them as well also. Um, those are good questions. Next week we'll finish chapter 3. Um, we're going to go into the ministry fair and into the, uh, into the potluck. So what's going to happen is we'll move the chairs We'll get the tables out, and uh, we'll eat, and then kind of after a little while, while we've been eating, what I'll ask is that if you are a leader of one of the ministries, that you'd go to one of the chairs, and then what I'm going to ask is everybody go, whether you're interested or not, in that ministry for participation's sake, uh, but to go to those ministries, and just encourage them, just thank those people who are serving, ask them how you can pray for them, ask them if they need help, and prayerfully consider about even um, serving in those ministries, but particularly, we need help in kitchen, we need help in nursery, and we need help in junior church. So while we're kind of highlighting all of them, those are the primary ones we're really looking for help in. Uh, then also, we'll do a few games today. Uh, we got a couple pinatas, I think we have Pin the Tell and the Donkey, and we also have a cake, pie, walk, pie, pie or cake? It's cake. It's cake walk, because we all need cake, because cake is good. Right? Yes, cake is good. Yes, cake is good. You guys are all just ready for food, I can see. Um, let's pray, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll begin moving around. Father, we thank you again for this day. Thank you for the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you that we're justified by faith. Thank you that you have redeemed us from the curse, that you have come as our substitute, that we might have life in you. God, may we cling to your Bible, that we would better understand the gospel every day, that we'd better understand who we are because of your grace and that we'd live each day by faith. God, thank you for your love. Bless the time as we fellowship now and we eat together. May it be a sweet time. In your name, Jesus, amen.